Welcome to the Agent of Wealth podcast with Mark Boudis from Boudis Financial. In this podcast, Mark helps guide you towards financial freedom, ensure you never run out of money, and create a balance in life that prioritizes what is most important to you. Join us for this journey as Mark draws from years of expertise and guest experts to solve the multiple wealth building challenges involved in your financial life. Welcome back to the Agent of Wealth. This is your host, Mark Bowdis. On today's show, I brought on a special guest, Chris Donaldson. Chris is a world traveler and the author of the book, Going the Wrong Way, a coming-of-age self-help book about a road trip like no other. This year, 42 years after his first journey, Chris is setting out on another adventure across the world. Today, we'll talk about the power of travel and reasons to journey around the world in retirement. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. It's nice to be here. So let's talk about your first journey 42 years ago. What made you want to ride around the world back then? Well, if you remember back when you're young, you think you can do anything and nothing is impossible. And the stupider it is, the better it is to do sometimes. So it made sense to me. I grew up in Belfast in the 60s and 70s. And it was, the troubles are in full spate. I went to school in the center of Belfast. You could see bombs going off through the lunchtime break windows. Bomb scares galore. You know, it was a very peculiar time to grow up for a kid. We didn't notice anything wrong at the, at the start because really when you're a kid, you don't know anything else. So you just think that's normal. But once you realize that the rest of the world doesn't live like this, I suppose it was one of the reasons I decided to get out when I finished school in Australia. Um, well, Irish people either go to Australia or America, as you know. I think it's more a lot more Irish people in America than there is in Ireland now. So I decided to ride a bike to Australia. It took me a couple of years to plan it on my route where I was going I would get I would ride to India and then take a boat from India to Australia stay there for a couple of months and go to the States or stay in Australia but the book's called Going the Wrong Way because I got to London from Belfast which isn't very far and the, um, the Ayatollah Mani decided to take over the American Embassy in November 79 with the revolution so that basically closed my closed the door east so I was stuck with somewhere, I left home, had to go somewhere, I couldn't go back home, so I decided to go south, follow the sun, um, went down to Greece, over to Israel, thinking you could get from Israel to Egypt, of course I couldn't do that at that stage, uh, ended up going back through Syria, which was pretty scary, something similar to it is at the minute, and through Jordan into Egypt that way, across the Sahara, down through Uganda, Africa was a pretty dodgy spot at the time, I mean, just got out of Uganda. Rhodesia had had a civil war, it's now Zimbabwe. Even Kenya and Tanzania, the border was closed, so there was a lot of sort of trouble and strife going on. So quite a hairy trip down to South Africa, which of course was in the middle of apartheid. So basically I went from having a carefully planned sort of three-month jaunt to Australia to a completely sort of chaotic journey down Africa. And at one stage I actually drove off the edge of my map, not knowing what was on the other side. South Africa managed to hitch a ride on a yacht and got a uh, yacht race back to Europe and got the bike f- sent to the States, to Los Angeles. Um, spent six months in the States touring around up to Canada and across and down to North Carolina, Florida, and then on down to South America. So it was quite a comic in a lot of countries in the world, apart from the ones that I originally intended to go to. It took about a year and a half, and it was it was quite a, as I say, coming-of-age trip. I was 21 years old. Was, I'd been away from home a couple of times, but nothing like... It was a baptism of fire, seeing how the world is run and what happens elsewhere. 
And I guess if one thing I think I learned in Northern Ireland, the troubles were were not quite so bad as as I thought they were. There's a lot worse places in the world. <laughs> did you return to Northern Ireland after the trip? Yeah, I did. I mean, I got ran out of money and I got sick. I caught hepatitis in South America, and, I, and the bike was in bits at the end of the trip as well. So I flew home, intending not really with a plan, just at that stage, just at a job in a family business, which seemed like a good idea to start in with anyway. So I spent the next, I suppose, 40 years working in the family business, taking it over, prospering well enough until the credit crunch so 10, 15 years ago. We had a bit of financial trouble. The banks took over my properties, took over the business. Um, spent three years of work and self-litigation to get them back again. And it was really at that stage I probably realized that one thing that the traveling had taught me was traveling my own, fighting my way through various dictatorships and troubles was that uh, you know, if you want something along well enough, you want to make your mind up to get there, you can do it. Um, certainly gave me the realize that what I'd learned on that journey had actually uh, forged the way I felt myself and the way it worked and the way my personality was for the last 30 years since the trip. And I was able to finally realize that it made me the man I was, if, I, if you like. It doesn't sound too corny. And that, that trip, you, you did it by yourself or were you with, with someone? I did it by myself. Um, I find, find traveling by yourself is much more beneficial, if you like, so than traveling with somebody else. Because if you're with somebody else, and the more people you're with, you're less inclined, the more there, there are with you, the less inclined you are to actually meet other people along the way. And the whole idea of traveling is not just to see the sights, it's also to meet the people and learn new cultures and learn what's happening in the places you're going through. So if you want to do, as a way, it's a bit force feeding, you have to. If you're on your own, if you want to talk to somebody, you have to find somebody to talk to and be, make yourself much more open and, and available to the local people. And generally around the world, you find that people will talk to you if you're on your own. You're less um, threatening if you're on your own, especially in a motorbike as well. Motorbike's a great way of, of breaking the ice with people. Everybody either likes motorbikes or hates them, but usually they like them. And uh, it's a good conversation starter with people. And when you were planning, how did you think about the finances or paying for it? Did you like put a budget together or did you kind of just wing it and say, you know what, well, I have what I have and I'm, this is what I'm going to leave the house with? Well, pretty much. I think I'm about a thousand pounds put together, which is probably about four or five grand now, which is not really an awful lot to live on for three or four months. But uh, I thought that would get me to Australia okay, which it would have because it would only take me three or four months, as I say. The plan would have been to sell the bike in Australia and get a job and Possibly stay there, you know, it would have been open for anything at that stage at 21. My main problem with the route I did take, it took me a year and a half. I know it did work along the way a wee bit. Um, the shortage of money was always quite dramatic. So one of the biggest problems I had was actually living like, like locals in Africa. You can live very cheap in some of these places. If you're camping out, living like a local, sofa surfing. Yeah. So now, I guess it was about four years ago, you decided, let me actually put this to words, put this, these memories or this, this recollection of the, of the journey to words. And that's, that's how you started the book. Yeah. I mean, it was about 60, come 60, a lot of friends were retiring and I was rewinding my business down a bit, trying to look at ways to take more time. But when I looked around, my friends had taken earlier time and I really didn't like what it saw. People seemed to think that the whole idea of working for 30 or 40 years was that you could do nothing all day. Just veg out in front of the TV, play golf a couple of times a week, work in the garden. It really didn't seem that attractive that you worked 40 hours a week for 40 years to basically be unemployed and, and not have an awful lot of money either compared to when you were working. 
So uh, one of the things I decided to do was learn how to write the book, set myself a challenge to write a book. I never did very well at school. I flunked my English language a couple of times, I'm sure. So I had to learn how to go around writing a book. Having the story is only part of it. It's getting it down into words and into words that people enjoy reading. Did you journal during the trip? Or when you started this book four years ago, you had to basically remember everything from memories. No, I was, I was lucky enough, or unlucky enough, whichever way you look at it. I did journal everything as I went along. And when I got back, I'd actually started putting it into the manuscript. Um, but about six months after I got back, somebody brought me a book that somebody else had written, a guy called Ted Simon had written a book called Jupiter's Travels. And he'd really he'd practically done the same journey I'd done, only he'd gone farther before me. He was 40-odd years old. He was a journalist, a writer, and he'd written a very good book, which I thought I'll never be able to replicate that. So I basically gave up at that stage and put my notes and everything else in the drawer and just forgot about it. So it was very interesting pulling the notes out again, reading my notes that I'd written when I was 22 as a 60-odd-year-old and putting myself back in the, the brain, as I say, if I had the, the thought processes that were going through my head then when I wrote those notes. So I tried to write the book with that as a as a 22-year-old, a 21-year-old, rather than as a 60-year-old, which was quite interesting, <laughs> thinking the same way as you thought 40 years ago. Yeah. But the interesting thing was the um, things that I'd forgotten or I'd thought I'd forgotten. Whenever you read about them in a diary or in a journal, they come back a bit and then you start writing about it and looking at the photographs that you took at that stage. And it's like scraping paint off an old piece of wood. The, the story is still there underneath all the paint. Um, but it's just been the brain's covered it up with 40 years of things that have gone on, which sort of covered up what you what, what was it, what's in there. But it was amazing how much I actually did remember back again and how even that felt like in the middle of Africa or in the middle of South America or something like that. It was amazing how it all came back. Not all of it. Obviously, you can't remember what people said and so on, but an awful lot came back that they, required, that they needed to do to write the book. In those 40 years since, have you ever been back to any of the places that you, you went to on that initial journey? Uh, I've been back to America a few times, a good few times. I went to South Africa a couple of times as well, but not really because I think if you go somewhere the second time, you're generally not going to enjoy it as much as you did the first time. It's like going on holiday, you have, you have a great time, you go back the next year and it's just not the same. And the reason it's not the same is that people aren't the same and you're not the same and whatever you liked about it the time before maybe isn't just the same either so it's i think it can be quite dangerous expecting the same thing to be happening again i have read about people journeying along the same lines that they've done before and i think very often it's a disappointment maybe you just imagined it was better at the time than you than you were there before but uh, when i was going away this trip i decided to go a completely different direction generally i think it's better not to cover the old ground again so you're thinking about doing another adventure to try and get to Australia? Well, a couple of years ago, one of my mates read my book, and he says, this is a great book, really enjoyed it, but you never actually got to Australia. What about having another go at it? So I looked down and thought, I can't really do that. I've got a 15-year-old daughter. I've got a job. I've got a wife, family. How do you just disappear for three months at a time? You can't do that. So we just decided to break it down in stages and basically go away for two weeks at a time. And I took the same motorbike I travelled on 40 years ago. So we got it done up, and Liam had a, he bought a new motorguzzi. Mine's an old motorguzzi with them on. They're Italian motorbikes. So we just we went down to Greece, first of all, parked up in a, in a local dealer there, left him there for a couple of months. Came back in between COVID was another added bit of excitement to throw in the mix. 
How long does it take to get from Ireland to Greece? Well, it's about 2,000 miles, so you can do it in a week quite nicely. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty close. Yeah, it's not too far. So we parked up in Greece in the local Mudagosi dealers, then came back last November and took the bikes over to Israel with the intention of going to Jordan and into Saudi and then to Dubai as the next stop. But we got to Israel and, well, they wouldn't let us cross the border into Jordan. There's some, some the guy decided to do it, didn't like our paperwork. So it was a bit of a deja vu talk about going back to the same place twice. When I went to Israel 40 odd years ago, I couldn't get out. I could, tried to get to Egypt and Israel and Jordan and they wouldn't let me over the border. I came back this time and it still wouldn't let me out. So, <laughs> although I did meet uh, a lovely experience, there was a guy I stayed with uh, in Tel Aviv for three or four days. We got on very well with, but being kids in those days, I never kept his address. I did have his name. I'd never been in touch with him, but with the wonders of Facebook, uh, one of my readers in Israel was able to track him down. So a guy called Alex we met up with in a wee Irish bar in Tel Aviv after 43 years, which is pretty cool. But uh, so we put back to Greece and left the bikes there again. And that's when the, the problem started because Liam decided that he didn't want to go on. He decided just to come home, which put me in a bit of a quandary because I'm not as young as I used to be. The bike was not as young as I used to be. And I didn't know if I had the wherewithal to cross some third world countries and Iran, places like that on my own. So I had to do a bit of soul searching there and eventually decided I would give it a go and see how I got on. So I went back down to Athens and drove across to Turkey, which was quite interesting because it was freezing. It was March, end of March. I've been to Greece lots of times and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's like Florida. It's lovely weather, sunshine all the time. With six inches of snow, freak weather with global warming, having all sorts of repercussions around the place. Um, went through Turkey into Iran, which was the boogeyman, if you like. And I was nervous about still a... Obviously, what's going on at the minute is difficult for travellers. But it was one of the uh, friendliest countries I've ever been to. It's, it's pretty ironic. The ones, places that you're most worried about, people couldn't be nicer. Every time you'd stop, ask directions, people would invite you into their house, invite you to stay. A couple of times even filling up with petrol. The guys beside me insisted on paying for my petrol. Whether it's because they've been isolated for so long, they wanted me to make up for the, their government or whatever, but... It's certainly one of the friendliest countries I've ever been in. So I drove down to the south of Iran and over to Dubai, where I left the bike again. I lived for eight years in Dubai when I was in my 50s. I worked there for, for a while, ran a little IT business, and I lived in a boat because I couldn't afford to pay the rent of a, the housing over there. It's like New York. It's ferocious. So I left the bike there. Uh, for the next jaunt, came back for another few months. So one of the main reasons put people off Doing a long journey like that would be the time it takes, but there's always a way around it if you want. You can obviously cost a bit more the further you go away, the more the flights cost going back again. But you can actually ride around the world or drive around the world, whatever you want to do, in stages, just leaving your bike where you and come back to work. And you've also got your laptop. You can be in touch the whole time as well. One of the main differences, I suppose, between traveling now and 40 years ago is the communications. So much easier now with with the internet, with GPS, with uh, communications. You can book your hotel on booking.com or Airbnb, whatever. You know, so Google Maps will tell you exactly where you're going, what the roads are going to be like, how long it's going to take you, which kind of takes a bit of the magic away from it a wee bit because it sort of spoils the, uh, the not knowing, but I suppose it's a wee bit safer. So the next thing, I you know, just 
finished. We went from Dubai back to Iran and then to Pakistan. Pakistan was actually the hairiest place because I had to travel by uh, police escort the whole way across, which was pretty hectic because they'd either be going at 18 miles an hour or 80 miles an hour, neither of which particularly suited me. But they were lovely people, but they have their problems from, I suppose, the spillover of the problems from Afghanistan. They've had a lot of trouble over the last 20 years. So I left the bike. That was the fifth leg in Pakistan, across India and into Nepal, where I left the bike and got it flown to the States, or soon flown to Australia, where it is now. So the bike's finally made it. After 43 years, it's, it's finally got to Australia. And I'll be flying out in, uh, in the new year sometime to finally complete my complete that part of the journey. It's been a trial of, I mean, obviously for the bike, it's, it's a trial of engineering that's keep, kept going, but I'm not the, the fittest person. I've actually been diagnosed with Parkinson's a couple of years ago, which is probably one of the reasons I wanted to set myself a challenge as well. I wasn't going to let myself go down a slippery slope without finding back as best I could, uh, mentally and physically. I think it's... Uh, I mean, as they say in fitness, if you don't use it, you lose it. You know, if you don't use your your body, you'll deteriorate as you get older. And I think it's very true with your mind as well, with your memory and with your ability to think and work things out. But also mentally, I think it's important to have a, a challenge to learn something new. Um, as you get older, you get tired or you, everything's more of an effort. And I think it's easy just to do things the easy way, the old way, the way you know. The trouble with that is you lose the inspiration or the interest in in learning something new and trying something different, which I feel at 64 is, is vital to, to keep an interest, to keep your brain alive, keep your interests alive, to uh, not fall into the can't-be-bothered routine that so, so many older people get into. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I see is there's always the – financial aspect of retirement, stopping working and this, but just as important is, you know, what are you going to do with that time? And, and how are you going to, do you have hobbies? And like you, you mentioned, you couldn't see yourself doing the, you know, golf and tending to the garden. And, you know, you want to do things that actually stimulated your, your mind or, or, you know, helped you help you grow. And I think that's a challenge too, for people is to find that aspect of, of retirement. Yeah. And I do feel that myself, you know, that I, Days you couple you get up and you can't really be bothered doing too much and you haven't got the energy and you wonder where your energy's gone, and it is more of an effort to to kick yourself in the ass and, and get out and do things. But I think it's vital to, as I say, not just for your physical physicality but for your mental approach to life and to to keep an interest in doing something that you you find is difficult to do or maybe impossible to do because it's by pushing yourself that extra bit. To do that very difficult thing that you're you're going to keep stretching your brain power to to challenge yourself, you know. Yeah. Do you plan on writing a, a book on this this tri- this trip or a stage trip as well, or or no? Uh, yes, I probably will. I've, I'll probably make it more of a memoir story of my life as such. The different things that have happened along the way. I, I haven't made so many mistakes. I've learned a few things in the last sixty years. I haven't made quite as many mistakes as I made when I was twenty one. There's no girls involved this time as well, so it's not going to be quite as interesting. <laughs> but uh, a different angle, obviously. It's I suppose the immediate sort of thing is first book was a coming of age story. This is a I'm not sure what the actual wording is of, of leaving of age or finishing of age. Yeah, 
Well, we're just about out of time. Chris, I want to thank you for being on the, the show today. Great in- inspiration on making the most of your time. Uh, it was really interesting hearing about your journey. How best can someone find out more about you, get a, get a copy of the book? Well, the book's available worldwide on Amazon, going the wrong way, by Chris Donaldson. It's got about 900 reviews so far, so it's going very well. It's got a great reaction. I've got my website, chrisdonaldson.world. But certainly for the States, paperbacks and ebooks and the audiobook is available on, on Amazon. That company we love to hate. We can't do without them. <laughs> yep. And we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes. And uh, yeah, thanks again, Chris, for, for being on today. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you for listening to the Agent of Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Boutis Financial. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial planning and investment advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investments and financial planning. 